WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Lazowitz. And this week, our guest is the writer of books like AWA's American Ronin and the new Happy Hour from Ahoy, Peter Milligan. Welcome, Peter. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, so, uh, do you remember some of the first uh, comics you ever read? I read. You know, uh, I'm kind of uh, unusual in this business in that I didn't really uh, grow up cutting my teeth on comic books. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't really the thing I was madly into. I was into books, big time books and art. And it wasn't until a bit later I started to uh, see some comic books and be interested in them. Really, just I was interested in how, well, these were words. I like words. Mm -hmm. And these are pictures. I like pictures. <laughs> I, thought, I, should really, I should really like this stuff, you know. But a lot of the kind of, the, I guess, the American stuff, which you could find, uh, didn't really speak to me. The mm -hmm. superhero thing didn't really speak to me uh, much. Uh, so I guess the first comic books I read would have been the very British comics, like Eagle, uh, which my mum probably bought me when I was a, when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was okay. I didn't kind of love it, but it was fun. It was good. You know, it was good. It was okay. Uh, in terms of American comics, the first person who really, who really caught my eye, I was I was a, bit, a little bit older. Was Steve Ditko and that kind of stuff. Only because I just loved that weirdness. Mm -hmm. I just loved it. And he seemed to have. It seemed to me that uh, a lot of the a lot of the comic books I saw from America had a had a kind of photo kick quality of the voice. They seemed to be quite, it was very hard to determine the author. Uh, I don't mean just the kind of the writer, I mean like a mind behind the stuff. It seemed to be sure. uh, production line stuff. But with, uh, with, with Ditko stuff, you are very much aware of the person's mind. Mm. You're very much, a, I mean, you're very much aware of the kind of, the kind of thing that's coming at you. And uh, so I would say the first comics I read were Eagle, mm -hmm. but the first American comics that had an impact on me were uh, Steve Ditko comics. Um, curious, like what stage of Ditko? So, I mean, are we talking like sort of a 60s Spider-Man, Doctor Strange thing? Or are we talking like, you know, late 70s when he's writing like the Charlton characters and stuff like that? I mean, probably late 60s. Mm -hmm. uh, Remember, I'm, I'm, I probably read, read them a few years after they came out as well, but, but probably mm -hmm. that, that late 60s, 70s Doctor Strange uh, stuff. Uh, I mean, the Doctor Strange stuff I really loved. Mm -hmm. um, and some also some of the weirdest. I mean, I forget exactly what it was called. Not, not one of the big time uh, hero characters, but just some of the, the strangest stuff he did. Yeah. Uh, I liked, uh, I quite like Fritz the Cat as well, actually. Uh, you know, and um, what's his name? Uh, the Fritz the Cat, who was the guy? Who was the guy? Robert Crumb and that kind of yeah. stuff. Is mm -hmm. that, does that count as comic? Does that count as comic books? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I guess Robert Crumb I liked. Mm -hmm. Obviously, really because uh, I loved the way there was drugs and sex in it. I mean, <laughs> to my to my brow young mind, that's all it took really for me to really like something. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny talking about Dicko, you know, uh, we talk a lot about, you know, Jim Starlin as being sort of the, the, the caretaker of like the cosmic side of Marvel, but like Dicko was on that shit first, oh. you know, with Eternity and, and, and everything that he did in Doctor Strange. Just Very much way so. out there. Yeah. And, and Doctor Strange and Dicko's Doctor Strange always felt that was the definitive Doctor Strange. I uh, just loved the whole the whole, whole Greenwich Village feel that he had, and he really did capture, I guess, a mood. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and I'd never been to America at that time, so it was kind of a, a fairly make-believe place anyway. And uh, so I suppose in, in reality, so when you finally see the real thing, it's a bit of a disappointment after seeing Steve Dicko's rendition of uh, Greenwich Village. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's this his rendition of the of the village and of the Sanctum Santorum uh, was just, just amazing. Because mm -hmm. he has this kind of mind. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, it, and you eventually got to, you know, follow in Ditko's 
work with your work on shade. Yeah, I mean, it's, I would like to say the reason why I got onto shade was because of my love for Dicker when I was younger. It was always a dream. And finally, I managed to realize that dream. But it really, really wasn't the way it worked out. Uh, there wasn't how and what, it wasn't how and why I ended up writing uh, Shade for Changing Man. It was uh, slightly more circuitous. And uh, obviously, I'd written um, Screamer for, um, for uh, DC, for Karen Berger. And they liked that. And they wanted me to write somewhere else. And, and Karen wanted me to write uh, an ongoing series. And we wondered what to do. And, and clearly, my strengths were, uh, let's say, not necessarily in the middle of the road uh, area. It was kind of like my strengths would have been bringing a bit of a kind of a personal voice to something and maybe pushing the envelope a little bit and, and really being able to write about stuff that really um, mattered to me and, uh, and affected me. And, and, and uh, so that, that would have precluded a, a character uh, that was high profile enough for the guys at DC to really worry about me messing up with. You know, so almost like, so we needed a character who uh, was kind of like nothing was being done with it. Uh, which therefore, there's almost like a correlation between the more important a character, the less you can really mess with it. Less important, the more you can mess with it. And I wanted something which I could really mess with and really put my stamp in and really write what I wanted to write. But they thought at that stage of my career, it would have been good to have some kind of name recognition in the superhero that I, that I, that I chose. And, and uh, Karen kind of like showed me these uh, Shade the Change Man books, which I had seen before, but I didn't know really well. And I read this uh, Shade the Change Man stuff and it seemed that everything was there and nothing was there. I mean, it, it seemed to be a lot of kind of fantastic ideas, but nothing was distinct, nothing was clear. And it was kind of like, it was so kind of up in the air that I thought, well, really, I could do any, anything I want with this and just take the idea of just a few basic elements like this main character. I loved the, I loved the idea of this person who kind of had the power of madness. There seemed to be just that. I was sold on that, the power of madness. Uh, and it seemed to be to tie in exactly with what I wanted to do uh, with, my, with, with me writing about America, I guess. Uh, and it seemed to be perfect. Uh, so um, yeah, so that's how that's the that's how I got into shade. But uh, as I said, I, I think that if I'd never seen uh, Steve, Steve Ditko before in the in the past, and Karen had showed me those comics, what I wanted to do it would have been just what I was looking for. It's interesting. Well, uh, let's let's kind of, let's fast forward to the present. Uh, you know, uh, you've got a series out now from uh, Ahoy Happy Hour with uh, Michael uh, Montanat. Uh, <clears throat> it's a fairly simple premise uh, in a in a near future America. Sort of everyone's required to be happy under penalty of law. Uh, effectively, those who aren't are sent to readjustment centers. Uh, what what's the uh, what's the origin story of this project? How did you uh, you know how did you get involved? Okay, uh, it's. Uh... Before I, before I talk about this, this is, uh, it's going to sound like a criticism of America, and it's really not. It's really not a criticism of America. Um, but when I first started to go to America, um, you know, years ago, when I first, one, one thing that struck me, apart from, you know, the cars are bigger, the buildings are taller, and there's more people, apart from all that kind of stuff, it was just mm -hmm. how happy people were. I mean, just how, or at least, how people gave the impression of being really, really up. And it's like, it's coming from a country where the default mode is a kind of semi-miserableness, a kind of fairly pessimistic, quite ironic, uh, you know, kind of um, attitude, because the weather's kind of shit. Of course mm -hmm. it's shit. And, and, and this is gonna be, and the, and the politicians are like, well, of course, you know. And it's kind of like, just to go to a country where, if you like, the default mode was so, seemed to be so much more optimistic and so much more up. I kind of liked it, but another part of me was driven mad by it because I saw it was a really interesting kind of uh, disconnect between the optimism and the, if you like, the upness of lots of, you know, of lots of your interactions with people. 
and the other stuff I was seeing when I was there, which was like the amount of gun crime I was reading about and seeing in America. The amount of homelessness I saw when I first went to America really kind of blew my mind. Uh, and it was, uh, it seemed to be so much more than um, what we had at home. I'm happy to report that we've managed to keep up with you now. And now when I come back to London, it feels pretty much the same kind of homelessness. Uh, so, you know, like, well done Britain. We've managed to kind of like catch up with America. Uh, and, uh, but when I first went to New York specifically, I really thought, I really saw a lot more homelessness. And I really saw a lot more poverty on the streets than I was used to at home. Uh, for some reason, somehow, we do seem to now have kind of matched you. But at that time, it was a, I noticed it. And also, of course, I was aware of the bad gun crime that was in America, because I was reading a lot about America when I was in there. And, uh, and there seemed to be an interesting disconnect between the optimism and, and upness. Hey, how nice. Hey, that's great. Hey, fantastic. Things couldn't be, you know what? They had to be great. Because people say, oh, they couldn't just like something. You have to love it. And it's kind of like it's, it struck me. There was a strange disconnect between that optimism and some of the dark, horrible stuff that was going on in the country. And that was the first germ for this story. Uh, thinking, it's an interesting kind of way of, um, of dealing with problems rather than dealing with the problems themselves. Just fucking make people be happy. You have to be happy. And you are happy. And if you're happy, well, so there's more, so there's more uh, uh, gun shooting, so there's more ritual slayings, so there's more homelessness, so there's more unemployment, so there's more great racism. You have to be happy. So, and so it's just a way, of, it's an easier way of dealing with problems than dealing with those problems themselves. So that was, I guess, my first, my first the first germ of the idea was that when I first dropped, got off the plane in America and I found this optimism, laced with the sense of impending violence, which I thought was, uh, which I thought was uh, the interesting thing. I mean, if anything, uh, I guess you go, if anything, if you, you go to Scandinavia, they should be optimistic. They should be upbeat. Because, you know, like if, if you look at the social welfare system in Scandinavia, it's fantastic. And if you look at the... Um, the gun crime compared to America, it's nothing. But they've got the highest rates of uh, suicide in the world. You go there, there is a sense of miserableness. And so it's, it's, so it's very interesting what goes on there. Uh, and that was the germ of the idea of a happy hour. And, and then uh, coupled with that, I've been doing some reading of uh, some psychologists and uh, a few sort of things that have been coming out were, a few were saying that a lot of their patients, pretty much the symptoms that they were, uh, the symptoms that they were presenting with were unhappiness. And it's like unhappiness itself is a kind of disease. Unhappiness itself is a kind of mental illness. And they wanted to be cured. They wanted the psychologist to cure them of this unhappiness because they had a right to be happy. We have a right to be happy. And it seems to me from having a right to be happy is only a small step from having an obligation to be happy. Mm. And it struck me that, well, it struck me, it also struck the psychologist that I read, which is more important. Uh, and after I read him, it struck me also. But it struck me that, um, and it struck him, that um, sometimes being unhappy, you know, during our lives, there's lots of stuff that happens, some good stuff, some bad stuff some terrible stuff and some fantastic stuff. It seems to me that there are times in our lives when being unhappy is not only a natural and correct reaction to events, but also quite perhaps a useful reaction to events, that being unhappy is the thing which might engender some change or some des desire for change in a situation that is making you unhappy. And that could be personal, it could be societal, but uh, um, yeah, so it's the mixture of my memory of first going to America and then reading these books about how in this modern world, lots of people feel that it's their right to be happy. And if they're not happy, that is in some ways, there's something wrong with them. As opposed to, no, there's something right with you. 
there's no law that says that we have to be happy all the time when things in our lives aren't going fantastic. And that's it. It's just, as I say, it's a simple one. It's a simpler start off for an idea. But once, once you kind of get it going, obviously you can then expand it. And then, well, how do you make these people uh, happy? What do you do if they're not happy? Who kind of judges them? So, you know, in, in the book, there's these things called the joy, the joy police. And they feel like the, um, the Taliban of the laughter world. You know, I mean, like it's pretty much as as these kind of the Taliban extremists might wander around certain countries of the world. You know, and if you haven't, if you're not wearing a hijab, or perhaps if you're dancing and playing music or doing something else which they would deem as un-Islamic, which but ninety percent of the um, Muslims wouldn't deem as un-Islamic. But but this very extreme version of the of the religion uh, would walk around punishing people for not adhering to their uh, extreme version of their religion. Uh, so, so, you know, so, so we have the joy police. And, 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 we ha- and when, when something goes wrong with you and, and you start to be unhappy, you're sent to readjustment centers, which, which seems to be quite a scary concept, a readjustment center to force you to be happy again. And there are ways in which they kind of uh, shock you out of your unhappiness. Uh, and it's quite evil but in an amusing kind of way. Um, in, my, in my reading, kind of preparing for this interview and, and also after reading Happy Hour, you know, one of the, one of the doctors at the readjustment center uh, in the first issue frames the need for everyone to be happy as basically a capitalist issue. He says uh, thousands of hours were lost through depression or anxiety, uh, even more hours stolen by striking militants preying on the fears and miseries of coworkers. And, you know, I started looking for sort of the basis in reality uh, for all this. So I was reading this, this Guardian article from 2017 about this plant in China that makes iPhones. And they had to install nets around the facility because there were so many people jumping from the building that they needed to catch them all and, you know, put them back to work making iPhones. Um, you know, I, and then uh, I, I found this Washington Post report that said, that workplace suicides, this came out in the beginning of the year, so pre-COVID, uh, were up 11% from the prior year. So, you know, it's one thing to say, hey... Wait, wait, this China was this? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the, the Washington Post one, I believe that was the U.S. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, the suicide nets were China. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's one thing to say, hey, mental health is a problem in this country. We should address it. And it's entirely another to say, you know, we need to get a handle on this because it's, it's getting in the way of, of our profits and we need to, you know, squeeze more product, productivity out of, out, of the, uh, out of the workers. So, you know, it, it takes something that could be well-intentioned, uh, if horribly misguided, uh, you know, and, and, and turns it sinister. Uh, well, I mean, lots of things which end up being... Uh... One, one could argue that communism is well-intentioned, uh, and I think it is, you know. Mm-hmm. But if you look at how it tends to shape up, uh, the effect is in, I mean, I think there is an anti-capitalist uh, agenda to some of the book, but in reality, if you look at uh, communism, how it's a great idea, uh, I mean, I've heard a bit about Marx, and it seems to be perfectly sensible. Uh, and his reading of capitalism seems to be perfectly sensible. But if you look at, in reality, how most uh, most communist regimes end up, Joseph Stalin, Popol, uh, in China, I mean, so many, you know, Cambodia, just like bloodbaths, terrible, East Germany, really restrictive. You know, uh, and whenever we talk, I talk about that with people, they will say, yeah, but that's not really communism. And it comes to time when you think, well, it calls itself communism. It walks like a communist. It barks like a communist. There comes a time when you think, well, maybe that is what happens with communism. When you've got this great idea that it is flawed. Uh, but this is completely not what Happy Hour is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, utterly not. But you are right. There was a bit of a... Uh, anti one version of capitalism uh, sentiment in, in, in that part of the book. Mm-hmm. Because it's true, because as long as everyone's happy, they're working. Mm-hmm. Everyone's happy, they work for shit uh, money. Mm-hmm. They work in shit conditions. I mean, they'll, they'll you know, like, it's so much easier than fixing social problems. And there would be a boon 
to a certain kind of capitalism. I really went off, you said uh, tangent. I really went off <laughs> on a tangent then. I mean, how did I start talking about communism? Ah, <laughs> uh, boy. Um, <laughs> we did say tangents are welcome, and I stand my, by that. My, my dad would be turning in his grave because uh, he was a communist. So. <laughs> um, you know, and then I was sort of looking into philosophies uh, of happiness, and, and I was reading somebody writing about Bertrand Russell. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, talking about zest and this idea that happiness is a thing earned by taking on tasks that are difficult, but not so much as to render them unachievable. And I realized, well, okay, that's what a video game is, right? Like you get a minor rush every time you, you know, beat a level boss or unlock an achievement, you know, whatever, except now that's, that's also very much, ap- you know, applicable to, to life, you know, as simple as you know, cro- yeah. You didn't say that um, Bertrand Russell was the father of video games. Mm. I'll go there. <laughs> yeah, we well, actually, well, yeah, that stuff. What um, Bertrand Russell wrote about zest is very interesting. It's kind of, I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether I completely embrace it, but um, it's very mm. interesting. It's in zest, but it's a very nice sentiment, isn't it? The zest is what is what makes you happy in life. If you can keep that zest, and uh, even just the, the the sound of zest, what it is, it's you know, in this. Uh, so I think that's a good way of thinking about what makes you happy: zest. You have a zest for life. You have a zest for achieving things which you are able to achieve, mm-hmm. uh, or failing in amusing ways. You know, I mean, yeah. So I think I'd buy. I'd buy. I'd go with Bertrand on that one. Yeah. And and hey, even even in cooking, a little zest, you know, grate a grate an orange or a lemon or a lime rind, it's perfect, spice up yeah. that meal. <laughs> Actually, it's, it's really right, and you don't need much. No, uh, you don't need much. Uh, my um, my cousin was over from uh, America. He lives in Washington, somebody, so mm-hmm. he came over with his daughter, a friend, and we, I cooked this big kind of like ragu for him with a wild boar, and it was really great. And I, for once, I used a recipe. Mm-hmm. And it, it is, in this recipe, it was to use this tiny bit of uh, zest from an orange. And there was just a tiny bit. And I said to my wife, what's the point of putting this in this? It's so much meat. There's so much stuff. This tiny bit of zest will make no difference. But it, made, it was amazing. Just a really small amount of this stuff, this zest, mm-hmm. uh, made all the difference. It was just incredible. Uh, and, uh, and perhaps that is a nice metaphor for life and how life should be. Absolutely. Uh, so there's, there's a little Easter egg in this comic, which, you know, I would say anybody who's been reading a lot of Ahoy over the last like two years probably saw quite easily. But uh, at one point, uh, an agent refers to the lead character, Jerry Stevens, as registering a 31 on the Pyre unhappiness scale, uh, which obviously is a nod to Ahoy editor-in-chief Tom Pyre. Uh, nothing to do with Tom Pyatt whatsoever. <laughs> um, you know, obviously you guys go all the way back to, to Vertigo, to, to Shade, where he was the assistant editor on the book. Um, you know, what, what is it about Tom that made you want to follow him all the way to, uh, to, to, the, to Ahoy, to this uh, in project? Interviews, in interviews, I've jokingly said that it was his hair. Uh, <laughs> his, but, uh, and that wasn't the whole reason. But he has got bloody ridiculous hair, and it's in, in a good way, in a good way. But uh, look, I loved working with uh, Tom way back in the day. I thought he's really music, he's really funny, but he's also really intelligent, and and he's really good to hang out with. And you know, as I go through my career, um, I like working with people. I like working, you know, I like being around and, and like sharing some time with. Uh, and that was one of the things which makes me decide whether I want to work for a certain company. Uh, it's whether or not I like the people I'll be working with. Because uh, it seems to me there's nothing worse than choosing to work for people who you kind of don't like that much or you don't really want to be around. And, so, and Tom is one of the people I really like. As I say, he's smart. He's really funny. He's actually really funny. Mm-hmm. And when he, first, when he first talked to me about Ahoy Comics, he said... It's vertigo with laughs. And I just thought, that sounded perfect. Uh, and I think that's pretty much what Happy Hour is, actually. I think that there's a lot in Happy Hour 
that could have been a Vertigo comic. A lot, particularly for you know, early Vertigo. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure whether there's enough. I'm not sure quite whether there are enough dwarfs and elves in there to be a, a current uh, uh, Vertigo <laughs> comic. But for the uh, for one of the early Vertigo comics, I think it, it it's pretty close to it. Uh, but it's with laughs, and uh, so I think that Vertigo with laughs was a really good was a really good uh, description of it, and also it's a really good. It really got me wanting to write for them, and also wanting to hang out with, you know, Tom, of and as an editor, and so, yeah, and and so I wanted to kind of, and actually, what's interesting about uh, the pious scale of miserableness, <laughs> it's, I'm not sure whether he's um, really miserable. So, that, so if he really was a very miserable person, I wouldn't have said that. I mean. If it had been a, a pious scale of problem drinkingness, maybe that, 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 might have, that might have been a bit too close to the, um, to the, to the, to the bone. But um, he's not a particularly miserable person. Uh, but nor is he particularly happy. You know, <laughs> I, think that, I, think that, I think he's got a fairly open-eyed view of what America is and, what, and, and certain of the crazinesses that go on in America. So I think that he really responded uh, well to that. He responded well to um, the idea for a happy hour, and I think that uh, you, you, meant, you mentioned the slight kind of uh, critique of capitalism that's in there. I think he responded particularly well to that because I think that on the quiet, I think that uh, Thomas Weber read. Um, actually, I don't know about. I'm not sure about quiet at all. Is it? Maybe, <laughs> maybe he's very noisy about it. Uh-huh. I've read enough of his letters from the editor. <laughs> well, I think that, yeah, I think that with Tom, what you see is what you get. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like it's, and, and he's kind of very amusing to be about. And, uh, you know, so if I lived in New York, I'd want to hang out with him. Mm-hmm. Certainly. So as we're talking about critiques of capitalism, <laughs> uh, we can move on to another book that you have coming out right now, uh, which is American Ronin from AWA. <laughs> which is set in a world that makes it more explicit about our corporate overlords um, and deals with uh, a corporate saboteur who is taking out the 0.1% by acquiring their DNA and gaining an empathic understanding of them that allows him to get past security and often uh, talk his targets into killing themselves. Uh, The book shares a lot of DNA with one of my favorite of your works, uh, Human Target from Vertigo. Okay, it's, I think it's, I think I think they're cousins rather rather than brother, maybe second cousins. You know, I, th- I think there's, I think that one thing I'm really interested in is a, uh, is character. So I really like, you know, I really like the idea of a of a character who can assume the role of other characters or really understand characters because it seems to me that. Uh, that, if you like, replicates in some way the process of being a writer, where, you know, as a writer, you try to put yourself in, in someone else's shoes. You, know, you do try to walk a mile in another man or another woman's shoes. And that's, that's what happens when you write. So in, in some ways, what the Ronin has to do, which is like get the DNA, DNA of a character to really be able to understand this character and understand his or her wishes and dreams and nightmares. That is in some ways what we do as a writer, uh, which is like, you know, you try to kind of, uh, you try to get a bit of the DNA of the character you're writing. So you really get under their skin and, and go in deep. Um, but in terms of the capitalist, crit- it was not so much capitalism as criticizing, but a certain type of corporate capitalism. And I think that uh, it's, it's the way the world's going. Uh, I think it was interesting uh, uh, those years back when there was the financial crisis. Uh, what was it, 10 years back now? You know, yeah. I think mm-hmm. it with Lehman and there was the subprime mortgages. Then they kind of spread like, it spread like a COVID-19 disease across the world. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, one thing, one thing that was interesting about that was just how... St- st- national governments were completely 
helpless to um to um to deal with it uh they could, okay they could they could make some local um they could do some local kind of fixes but ultimately they were you were you really aware of these multinational corporations that really strolled across the boundaries and really kind of like controlled things and also messed things up and obviously in, in that case they messed things up and so i think that this kind of stuff has stuck with me since then and in fact i wrote another book called um the discipline and and uh where this woman is also killing heads of corporations so clearly there's something there's something going on there but that and to, to a lesser degree uh uh um, American Ronin came from about two years after about two years after the um, financial crash uh, on the radio I was hearing this uh, banker this British guy young British guy uh, and he, he would and he was just he was talking about the financial crash and he said isn't it time we stop saying sorry and I thought what the fuck you know obviously it's like I must have been on a different planet when anyone said sorry for what they did, like the money men, the corporations, they just messed up the world. And in this country, we've been here for, for 10 years of austerity and across Europe, and so many lives were ruined. And they get away with it, completely get away with it. Because it's, because they are beyond the scope of national governments. And so there is a bit of that in America, for sure. There is that kind of anger at how the corp corporate world, not so much capitalism, because I think there's different types of capitalism, but I think there's a certain type of capitalism which lends itself to multinational corporations mm. who, are, who are intrinsically undemocratic. Um, and how they run things and how they will only run things more in the future. So, this, so the story is in some way, you know, kind of a, a look at that, and also, as I said, uh, it's 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 an, it's an examination of becoming someone else, of understanding someone else uh, as a character, and then using that. And I really liked how, um, you know, in in a comic book world, uh, we're full of powers and weapons. People who are weaponized. They tend to be quite active. There's lots of explosion. There's lots of punching. There's lots of flying around and kicking. I like mm -hmm. the fact that um, the American Rollings, if you like power, or is the, if you like its weapon, it's quite a soft weapon. It's a weapon of empathy. It's a weapon of understanding. Like, so I really liked that as a power, because it would seem to be so opposite to what most of the powers are in most of the inverted commas superheroes or weaponized uh, characters in, in our world of comic books. Yeah, that hit something that jumped out at me immediately. Weaponized empathy is such a fascinating concept. It seems to be a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? Exactly, because empathy is you ninety nine percent of the time presented as something to aspire to, to under, and then to see it used in the way it was here, I found absolutely fascinating. And one of the things I really like, or I really like about about the story and about this concept is how after he's made a hit on on a on a target and by using their empathy in the first episode uh he thought he kind of talks someone into walking out of a window and killing themselves um how there's still remnants of that person in him afterwards so he can't help feeling for them even as he's killed them he's done the job he's meant to kill them he's killed them but because he's still got a degree of their of this empath, empath, empathic feeling for them, he feels he feels for them. He feels empathy for them. So it's like it's not you know it's not a switch that you turn on and then switch off again. He still has a, a residue of this stuff in him, and it can take a day or two for him to shake it off. And I really liked that how that you don't get away completely free. You know, if you use empathy as a weapon, because it can turn around and because you know if you empathize with someone, you feel for them. You, you feel their pain. And so it, it, I like the fact that it, it's a weapon that also hurts him, even as he's using it to kill someone. Uh, one of the little details in this book that jumped out at me 
was the names of the, the pan corps, the, these now large corporations, that they're not, you know, cheeky little buzzwords, that, you know, Google knockoffs, but they're things that are Lincoln's Eye, American Dreams, Book of Changes, Adam's Curse. They're something that are really, they, they kind of grab you. Is there something in the book that's going to sort of play more with the significance of those names or was it just a detail because, you know, coming up with Googleplex as a name is just kind of dull. Well, that's exactly right. But also Googleplex is meaningless. I think is the problem is that unless you don't, obviously to us, it isn't meaningless because this word Google has, has come to mean something, but uh, it has no intrinsic meaning. And I wanted, I wanted names which, were evocative and evoked a sense of something. War and Peace, uh, Book of Changes, Adam's Curse, Lincoln's Eye. They all kind of they all seem to be names which evoke a potential meaning. And I wanted that. Particularly for these companies which are huge and meaningless in the they have no, the companies themselves have no meaning other than to rule, control, and make money. And that's what all these companies are about. So forget the brand names. All they're about is controlling, ruling, money. And so I like the fact of these companies who are hollowed out morally, and hollowed out in real intrinsic meaning, but they have these very evocative kind of like fancy names. And I like that contradiction. Is it easier to, to paint a, a corporation, you know, fictional or otherwise as a villain when you're working outside of, of corporate comics, you know, working for an indie publisher as opposed to, you know, DC? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Uh, that's a really good question. So like, we, are you saying that, that there would be a certain kind of a, I don't know, that, that, that it would be slightly strange or difficult or even hypocritical to be to be writing about the terrors of these multinationals if you if you're writing for a multinational like marvel or or dc who are only one kind of small step small part of this even bigger multinational so you're saying there would be a hypocritical irony there maybe i don't know about hypocritical i just i just wonder you know whether, well, you'd, we, whether you'd get more notes, I guess. <laughs> well, it, it wouldn't be harder for me to write. Mm -hmm. It might be harder for me to get it past the editor. Uh, yeah, I mean, but who knows? I mean, that just depends on the, on the, on the editor, on, on the book, and what they want for the book. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that... I think there are these guys, you know, in DC and Marvel. I mean, I don't write so much for them now. But I think that my experience has been that Okay. I think they'd be okay with that. Mm -hmm. As long as no names were used and no, you know. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, in the, dis in the discipline, uh, DC uh, decided they couldn't publish it. But that wasn't because uh, a woman was killing the heads of corporations. Mm -hmm. That's because of the full frontal sex. <laughs> so it was... <laughs> so death and murder is fine. Uh, Showing your balls or your pussy is kind of there. <laughs> it's always good to know where the line is. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know whether, I mean, one thing, uh, I don't know, one thing that I, I, I wanted to happen in the beginning of the discipline was uh, I said to the artist, that, look, if we're going to have a, we don't want to be coy, if we're going to have like full frontal nudity of women, it's important that it's the same with men as well. Mm -hmm. That you don't have that ridiculous thing where the men always turn three quarter degrees, and then where the women are kind of like the women are kind of like open themselves up for the world to see and to ogle. So, so it wouldn't work, turn out into some kind of wank magazine or turn into you know just like that normal stuff. If we were going to say these people walk around sometimes naked and we see them naturally, then it should be, it should be the same for both. Uh, uh, maybe it was maybe that was what. By page one, I think they decided they couldn't publish it. Uh, but that was nothing to do with the corporate um, death. That was just about to say. 
And I have to say, um, DC were really good about it. Well, I mean, it was their prerogative not to publish. If they, if, if what is turns in, if what is presented is what they can't publish as they see it, or beyond the power as they see it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were very fair after uh, they decided it, and we had, came to an agreement, and it worked out fine. Okay. This might be me looking too deeply into things, but I'm curious. Uh, issue one. Can I say you can never look too deeply into things? Okay, Good that's enough. that's fair. Uh, uh, issue one of American Ronin is set in Hong Kong, and that jumped out at me because of all of the recent anti-government, uh, pro-democracy protests, and the crackdown against it. Was that intentional or? Uh, Happy coincidence? Well, I mean, well, it's not happy. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> That's the other comic, Matt. We already tackled that right, one. Right. Happy, <laughs> scare quotes around it. Okay, okay. Uh, a few reasons. Some deep and meaningful, others a bit more glib. The glib uh, reasons are, I've been to Hong Kong a few times. It's a really exciting kind of uh, 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 place. And I wanted, I wanted uh, the book to have have that kind of James Bondy, this story goes all around the world feel to it. And so I wanted a, an exotic kind of place. And that's a, that's a really exotic kind of place. It's fantastic. Also, I wanted in a, in a book where we, I wanted to show just how powerful these, just how powerful these uh, uh, met pancors were. Are. And, and by the way, I call them pancors. Just because so, megacore are here all the time. So I wanted to come up with a different word. So I said, I came up with the word pancor. Uh, you know, it means the same kind of thing. But I just thought that even if in Hong Kong, which is so obviously controlled by the Chinese Chinese uh, Communist Party, even if there, the guys from a the guys from a, a corporation from from a Lincoln's Eye can walk in and take over a police investigation and say, no, no, we're in control now. Even if in Hong Kong, communist run. Hong Kong, this corporation can trump the government and say, no, we're taking over now. We're bigger than you are. We're more important than you are. I just thought it was, it, I thought it was a nice way of showing immediately just how important and all-pervading these guys' powers uh, were. <clears throat> and, and, it's, and it's a great place to see, you know what I mean? So uh, your artist on American Ronin, uh, Aiko's one of those guys, uh, those, those artists that's just, they're fun to watch. They're constantly innovating, you know, and experimenting. Uh, you know, I love their layouts. Uh, how did, how did uh, you end up, how did, you know, uh, Aiko end up being your artist on uh, the book? Well, uh, Axel suggested that it would be great for the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think what's, what's so good about Alex is uh, ALC. Uh, <laughs> what's, what's so good about him is that, um, he, the way he kind of structures the page, and very quickly I got to, to know what he was doing, so we were kind of playing off each other a little bit. Um, it seems to be that fractured, sometimes almost cubist look at things, seems to really fit what the story is about, which is someone who's able to kind of like see into see different sides of people, see different sides of situations. So it really does seem that. Uh, it's not just a pretty way of laying out a comic book page. It really does seem to um, say something and add something to what the story is about. So I think that the end, the end result is that it just seems like a really modern, really exciting and really active uh, kind of comic book. And I think that uh, I couldn't be more pleased with the way it looks. I just think it suits the comic because the comic is very modern. The comic, I think, has a very kind of a sense of this is the near future. It's kind of the future, but in a few days hence. And and I think the comic book looks to have that kind of look as well. And I think that I couldn't be happier with the way uh, the way it's looking. I think it's amazing. Um, you know, you, you really you've worked with some amazing artists over the years. 
you know, we just talked about one of them. And of course, there's Mike Allred, there's Chris Batchelor, Duncan Fagredo. You know, what do you, when you're work, you know, writing a, pro, writing a script, you know, what are you looking for in an artist? Do you kind of have your own, obviously, you know, a lot of times it's, you know, you're working with a publisher to kind of connect with an artist, but do you have your own sort of like interview or audition process in your head or whatever you, you know, want to call it? A bit, yeah. I mean, it's, it depends on what kind of project it is. But yeah, there will be a process where there'll be a process where, you know, you've got a new project, you've got a new idea. And you're looking at the kind of person that's going to be good for that project. I mean, to take you way back to uh, when I first started to write Ecstatics, mm-hmm. um, I think that was initially going to be um, uh, X-Force. Yeah. Was, th- was then kind of morphed uh, into... Um, into ecstatics. Uh, okay, Axel again. It was Axel was the editor. Uh, we kind of wanted someone. We wanted someone who would bring a certain comic book sensibility. I think uh, so. Mike was perfect. We talked about Mike, and Mike was perfect for that because he does bring a certain naive comic book sensibility. And I think he has more of an innate comic book sensibility. But I think that I have a bit more depth. I'm not saying. I'm more depth than Mike. It makes him sound really shallow. But I think that the kind of stuff I write, the kind of stuff I'm interested in, has a bit more of a darkness than Mike would normally gravitate towards. And I think we thought there would be a really good, a really good marriage to have my, my darkness and his comic book sensibility. And so we'd get something that wasn't all light and fluffy, but nor was it all storm and storm and drang. So we had to kind of. So I think that's why in in our in ecstatics. We had something which was, particularly at the beginning, I think when it was really on the, on the money, uh, we had something that still had that Mike ironic comic book kind of look, mm-hmm. but at the same time had a bit of a meat and potatoes about it. He had a bit of darkness, had a bit of a real grit going on to it as well. And I like that. I like that tension between uh, the words and the pictures. Um, well, you know what, since we're, we're going down this path, uh, you know, you returned to Ecstatics last year for a one-off with uh, with Mike, uh, where you introduce a new You Go Girl, uh, and at the end, uh, uh, there's a teaser for a follow-up called The Excellent. Um, it is happening. It is happening. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolute more. It's a ten-part uh, maxi series. Give uh, me, and uh, so I'm I'm well through it. I'm, I'm almost written it all. Mike's drawing away. And, and it's just amazing to see Mike and Laura's uh, work coming because it's, the years just drift away, you know? I mean, it's, it's just fantastic. And it's, it has everything you want from a Mike Allred and Laura, a bit of artwork. And it, it's, it's a new comic book in the, in the um, we wanted, we wanted that excellent. So it's excellent number one, but clearly it's in the world of, mm-hmm. of ecstatics and ecstatics are a big part of this book. Uh, but there's a new team with some new characters, plus some old characters who have been dragged out of the grave and kind of stitched together, stitched together again. And uh, it's a great book. It's but it's in the in the way that Ecstatic spoke about what was going on, what it was 15 years ago. I think that uh, that was just at the beginning of the whole kind of real celebrity obsessed quality of our society. All the reality games shows were really coming through then. And that really spoke about that and about fame for fame's sake, celebrity culture. We didn't, I didn't want to write something which just trod over the same uh, ground again. So the ecstatics, sorry, the excellent is about something slightly different. It's, it's, it's looking at the world at the moment and trying to do with the world at the moment what ecstatics originally did with the world as it was then. And so I think we have a lot of really kind of like amusing and meaningful and great comic book drama and it's going to be really really good uh, that is that is fantastic to hear um you know when the initial one shot uh giant size ecstatics uh you know first came into the picture was that something that you know marvel approached you and mike and said hey do you do you want do you guys want to do this or had you had already had something in the chamber um i would forget um, I forget, it came around, I think it, it came around 
the kind of time when the um, uh, the movie came out. Um, uh, uh, who's the goofy comic? That's the, the superhero. Uh, oh, Deadpool. Deadpool. Yeah, yeah. So Deadpool. Yeah, and the Zeitgeist appeared in uh, yeah. Zeitgeist appeared in him, and that just got us talking. That got Marvel talking to us about mm-hmm. him. I think that kind of perhaps whetted their appetite a little bit, and uh, so that kind of got us talking uh, again, and. Um, and from there, I think we did the, we did the giant uh, one shot. We kind of wanted to do that a bit, just to kind of stitch together some things and uh, think about. I really like the new character. I really like the, kind of the daughter, and just to kind of almost like bring it up to date a little bit. But Mike and I's evil plan was always to then think, use this as a way of reintroducing it to people who had, didn't read the first books, mm-hmm. reminding people what it had been to people who had read the first books. And as a prelude, this larger thing that we were always thinking about wanting to do. So, uh, you know, Ecstatics was very much a product of that, that early 2000 drive to, to reinvent the X-Men, you know, between you and Grant Morrison and, and even, you know, Mark Miller on, on the Ultimate line to a certain extent, you know, as something not firmly beholden to, to Claremont and everything that had come before, you know, and eventually a lot of that stuff got folded into the larger mythos. Uh, you know, but for the most part, uh, I, I guess Duke notwithstanding, Ecstatic still very much feels like it's its own thing. Uh, you know, obviously it's it's still Marvel, so it's work for hire. But, you know, do, do you think of them more, uh, you know, as your own constantly dying children, uh, more so than other characters that you've written there? Uh, constantly dying children. Um. <laughs> it's kind of dark now that I think about it. <laughs> No, I don't. I don't uh, necessarily think it was my constantly dying uh, children. Maybe mm-hmm. just occasionally getting really sick children, and and but just pulling through at the last minute. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, no, I think clearly, mm-hmm. ecstatics was, if you like, ring fenced away from the rest of uh, uh, the X world to quite a bit, and I think that. That meant that we could pretty much do whatever we wanted and tell the story that we wanted to tell, which was about celebrity. It was never about how terrible the people were they were going up against in the big fights. It was never, ever about that. It was never about the fights. It was never about the great big spectaculars. It was always about the, the characters of these kind of lives of these superheroes who lived in uh, Los Angeles and had agents and, and had like branding deals and and kind of TV shows, you know, it was always just about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but taking, I guess, taking that X, X idea and then just really taking it to an, a bizarre, but, but also a very kind of realistic extreme. Um, and I think that we could only do that because we took over X Force when no one was interested in X Force, mm-hmm. uh, which meant that. It's said there's a kind of correlation between how big the characters are and what you could do with them. And no one's really interested in X Force, so we kind of got rid of them a bit. Even that was a bit too behoven to our Marvel. So mm-hmm. after the first episode, we got rid of all of, I killed off all of our, the new X Force characters. So we could start again, clean, clean slate, and just have these new characters, just to talk about exactly what I wanted to talk about. But in the rough idea of the of the X World. Once or twice, the real X uh, world impinged upon uh, ecstatics. I think that there was a fight between Mr. Sunsense, Mr. Sensitive, and Iron Man and Tony Stark's once. And they both didn't. Neither of them had their. Um, it was a really great fight because it was, it was, it was the softest girl fight ever between <laughs> between two um, between two superheroes because uh, neither of them had X, neither of them had their outfits. So Mr. Sensitive without his outfit. The t- a, a raindrop will send him into paroxysms of pain. Tony Stark was really worried about having a heart attack. So he was being really sensitive. So a flick, he'd think he was getting pain in his chest. So these two, they were kind of mocked around. For some reason, they were naked. I forget why, but there was a very good reason why they were both naked. <laughs> um, uh, it could have been where they were, at one point, I think, I think they were dealing with, um, there, was, there was this, uh, there was this uh, Christian or religious sect uh, who uh, 
who are what, what to do with nudity, and um, perhaps it was something to do with that. Uh, and then there was the, so I said, there was the great underpants schism. Is that what some members of this, some members of this sect were naked, but they wore underpants, and they so they they kind of broke away from the. Uh, they were like um, they were broke away from the other group, and that was the great underpants schism. Uh, and for some reason, uh, Tony Stark and Mr. Sensitive were naked and having this fight where they could basically a, a blade of grass and screaming in pain. Tony Stark worrying about you know Tony Stark breaking out in sweat because he'd been drinking too much, and uh, and worried about having a heart attack. And so it was the biggest kind of girl fight ever in comic books. <laughs> Uh, so just just a little you know trip in the way back machine to some of your uh dc work uh from the 90s uh one of the, the we mentioned shade the changing man earlier and i went back when you know we uh, found out you were going to be able to do the show and because i've i read all of that not when it came out because i was you know 10 but yeah i was 12 yeah there you go <laughs> but somewhat but many moons ago and i look at the concept of the american scream and the things you were talking about and my first is like boy this was prescient and then i realized no it's not so much prescient as things haven't changed that much in all these years and i think about that american scream and do you think in the the way the world is now is that a concept that could work or be reworked or is it just that you know nowadays you turn on am radio or you know one america news and that's basically the american scream just talking at you are you suggesting are you want are you asking me do i think that america has become a much more sensible less insane country than it was back then I think you know, I th my friend. I think you know the answer to that question. <laughs> yes. No. I. I think I'm asking the opposite. Has the things that were has it become more like that? Yeah. Yes. Has subtext become I think, text? I, I think maybe you're right. I think maybe you're right. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, I during that during the whole uh, during the um, election. I still now during the election. Uh, I turn on CNN just occasionally, just to get, and it does seem bloody insane. I mean, I think that it's, I mean, and, but, uh, but actually, but that makes it sound as if it's funny and kooky, but it's much darker than that. It's, it's much worse than that. And, uh, and uh, so, yeah, I think that if I was writing Show You the Change You've Been Now, if I was kind of a young writer, uh, I mean, at, the, at that time, I, I traveled across America, um, uh, just getting ideas for stories and meeting people and, and looking at places. You know, it was kind of a, I always saw Shade as a kind of a, a postcard to a cousin, a cousin with mental disease problems, but who I liked, but I was a bit scared of. And it was a kind of like an affectionate uh, postcard to him. Um, but if I was doing that now, if I was a young man, uh, a 12 year old writer, um, uh, uh, writing the series about Shade the Changed Man with, with the whole idea of some of the power of madness, looking at America now, boy, there would be so many stories. I mean, it's just rich with, uh, with, with potential storylines for Shade the Changing Man. Like, isn't it? I mean, and you wouldn't need to use hyperbole. I mean, in fact, you'd have to tone it down a little bit for Shade the Changing Man. I, I also realized that you started your run on Detective Comics within a year of when I started reading comics and how much though some of those early stories, early stories to me that you wrote are stories that still stick in my head. Uh, Dark Knight, Dark City, Hungry Grass, Gollum of Gotham. And I mean, you, you know, you have said a couple of times about how you can get away with a lot more with those sort of side minor characters than you can with the big boys that, you know, shade and animal man were characters where you could have pulled some. I know what you're things. saying, but you don't get any bigger boy than Batman. Right. Yeah. So, they let, me, they let me do these things. I was to, I think it's partly because 
Alan Grant was writing uh, Batman, and he was writing in the more uh, uh, down the middle, what you'd expect Batman to be. And I think he was writing that, that kind of Batman. And uh, it was, you know, it was great, but he was, he was writing, if you like, the, the Batman who you're used to reading. It's kind of, in detective comics, gives you, if you like, a bit more of a license to mess around with the kind of ideas. It was still Batman. I think it, the Batman himself was never not Batman, but it was just the kind of things he dealt with tends to be slightly more strange. Uh, like, I, can't, I mean, like the, library, the, um, the, uh, the Hungry Grass, for example, there is an old Irish, uh, there was an old Irish uh, legend that during the times of the, of the famine, you always carried a, a piece of bread in your pocket. Because uh, if you trod on a piece of grass where someone had died of the hunger, you could fall down with the hunger. Unless you had a morsel of food, uh, it would, it would, you, would, you would also die of the hunger at that moment. So I think I just took that uh, old legend and then kind of morphed it into this uh, comic book. And it was great fun because I had lots of ideas I mean, like, um, for, for these wacky stories. Uh, but I liked Batman. But I liked Batman stripped down uh, when, you know, without the huge kind of a capitalist weight of Wayne Enterprises behind him of these machines and these ridiculous things. I liked him. A, a man in this suit, walking the streets. He's just well, well, He's kind of like well-trained and he's really smart and that's it. I always liked that kind of pared down Batman as opposed to this huge, as I say, this huge capitalist enterprise behind him. Uh, and that's what I tried to, to do and then write really bizarre, weird stories. And I think you got away with it because they felt that that was what they wanted. I think they felt that weirdness was the way things were going and we need a bit of British weirdism to kind of like, because that's, that's the way comics are going, isn't it? And I think, so I think that uh, they gave me my head for a little bit. <laughs> well, actually, actually, I left the book after it was pushed. So that was a little bit. What are you reading right now? Comics or, or books? Uh, whatever. <laughs> well, well, well. I've just read a really interesting book about the great death. Uh, 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 the plague of a, plague mm -hmm. of a, 1380 or 1390 in, in Europe. And uh, boy, oh boy, was that a, was that a pandemic. Uh, <laughs> it's, just really, it's just really interesting. Um, it's just really interesting. Uh, not only just the sheer horror of it, but one thing was kind of like depressingly kind of like expected towards the end of it, it talks about how lots of people around kind of like Europe and Britain Guess who they all started to blame for the for the pandemic? Who? The Jews. Uh, the Jews. Oh yeah. And I was talking to my um. And it's so it's so like depressingly expected when you come across it. And uh, I was coming. I was talking to my German tutor um, uh, the other day. I, I learned German, and uh, so every every week I have a a week uh, an hour's conversation with uh, this woman from. Um, from Germany, and she was we were talking about that, and she was saying now uh, uh, there's a, uh, a German magazine called Die Welt, which is kind of quite right wing, and uh, there was an article they were writing a little documentary, and some people there was some kind of conspiracy theory claiming that guess what Jews are behind COVID nineteen, and it's just like it's like <sighs> nothing changes, absolutely nothing changes, so that's really depressing, but. It's just interesting how nothing changes. In, in, so, yes, yeah, so, so I finished reading that, and it was really interesting. I'm reading a really um, good book um, uh, about the Weimar Republic, which is obviously uh, be between the First and Second World War in Germany, and there was, uh, it was just really, really interesting. I'm also reading The Diary of Hen Frank, but I'm reading it in, uh, in German, and uh, boy, it's so moving. It's just so, I mean, I've never read the diary before. I mean, we all know Anne Frank, I've visited the house in Amsterdam and we all know the story, but when you read it, and you just read this 13 year old girl, uh, obviously really intelligent, obviously really had a gift for writing, but just talk about the normal kind of stuff, which is she's interesting, the boys she likes, her school friends, the parents, you know, the normal 13 year old stuff. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly the SS were at the door. I mean, it's just, uh, it's just amazing.
Ah, so, yeah. Well, uh, Peter, as we're wrapping up, uh, you know, how, what's the best way for people to uh, keep on top of everything you're doing? Uh, well, uh, you could look at my Twitter, which is uh, one piece of American, which is a uh, numeral one piece of American. Uh, uh, or you could, I don't know, what is the best way? How do, how do people normally keep up with that? Right? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you, uh, you, you keep your eyes open and... Uh, and uh, yeah, but Twitter is probably quite good because I tend to, I tend to tweet when I have new things coming out. And of course, they can ask you. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> All right. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, mate. I, I enjoy speaking to you both. Okay, mate. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A and WMQ Comics are now part of the Xavier Files Media Empire meaning you can find all our great comics coverage, along with some of the best X-Men and Marvel criticism around, at XavierFiles.com. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at XavierFiles.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice, and a $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail from my collection. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Young Ones at Match Club Podcasts, Robert Secundus from Docs Talks at XavierFiles.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, and Lan M from Lan's Vids. You can follow WMQ Comics and Xavier Files on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. And until next week, in the immortal words of Abraham Lincoln, be excellent to each other. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.